All right, our message tonight, darkness. This is week one of our Christmas series, The Meaning of Christmas. If you have a Bible, flip to Isaiah, and you're going to want to follow along Isaiah 9. We're going to jump to Matthew and Luke, but I'll let you know when the time comes, and we'll jump there. But we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And we're going to read Isaiah chapter 9, 1 through 7. These are the words of God. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall make great their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall shatter the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their taskmaster as the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior and the rumbling of battle and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government and or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Let's pray. Our Holy Father and gracious God, we thank you for the light of the gospel, the word who became flesh, even Christ our Lord. We confess today that we find ourselves nearly engulfed by evil and darkness, which puts us in a precarious situation. Help us not to fear nor give, give despair a foothold in our lives. Rather, help us by your Holy Spirit to exhibit faith and hope. In Christ's name I pray, amen. The meaning of Christmas. What do we mean by that? What exactly are we implying by suggesting that Christmas may have a deeper, more meaningful purpose than what meets the eye? Certainly, we find ourselves immersed in a culture of Christmas. Wrapping paper, ornaments, gift-giving, food, parties, lights, Christmas trees, and parades surround every one of us. Even the pagans and atheists enjoy some eggnog, sugar cookies, and mistletoe. But all of those blessings, and they are blessings, are benefits, spillovers, and consequences of something, or more specifically, someone. It's not human ingenuity that came up with these things. It's not our clever ideas that birth these sorts of festivals. Rather, all of it stems from the fact that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh and dwelt among us. The infinite took on finitude. The transcendent became imminent. The divine became human. The eternal was swaddled and laid in a feeding trough. The second person of the triune Godhead became an embryo. Are you astonished yet? Christmas is Christian. Christmas is Christian. However, Christmas isn't Christmas if we don't have the context. All of our celebrations, food, friends, and family is, in fact, all fine and dandy. However, no one eats their holiday meals without setting the table first. Only when the table is set 
can we then feast appropriately? And the same is true for Christmas, the advent or the coming of Jesus in the flesh. That is our starting place. That is the tableware that's set before us. That is the thing that holds the meal together for joyous consumption. The events surrounding his incarnation, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, is the foundation of everything. It is the foundation of everything. Christmas, you see, explains the world. It explains the world. Christmas spells out the true nature of reality. Christmas unravels and untangles the mess of human sin. Christmas provides the meaning necessary for existence in God's world. Christmas is the bedrock of all of our philosophizing and our theologizing. Christmas is about God and what he plans to do with the cosmos. So, let's look at our passages in brief. In Isaiah, we'll start there. The end of Isaiah 8 and the beginning of Isaiah 9 are a single unit of thought, so we need to take them together. And to give you some quick context here, Isaiah is a prophet, one of the what we call the major prophets, major mostly because he wrote an extensive amount. They're bigger books, Jeremiah and Ezekiel as well. They're just bigger works, so that's why we call them the major prophets. But Isaiah is a prophet of God, and he's ministering to Israel. And here he gives a warning to King Ahaz and the people, telling them that Assyria's, Assyria being the rulers of the world at that time, but Assyria's impending invasion is right on top of them. Unavoidable judgment is staring them in the face. Now, Assyria would come and destroy Damascus, the capital of Syria, and then it would come and destroy Samaria with... Of course, that's the capital of Israel, the northern northern kingdom. And in 722, that prophetic word came to pass. 722 B.C. is when Assyria sacked the northern kingdom. Israel was defeated. Many were dispersed across the land. Judah, the southern kingdom, was at risk of invasion as well because of her presumptuousness. She, too, had only escaped this judgment by the grace of God, for Judah, the southern kingdom, had gone along with Ahaz in his wickedness. So their judgment was on hold for another 150 years when Babylon would eventually rise to power and decimate them in judgment. And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, gives us a glimpse of of that. But here in chapter 8 of Isaiah, there are exhortations and warnings to Israel then there is comfort for those who actually do still fear God. And what we find is that there's a division in the people of Israel. There's a division in the people of God. There are those who fear God, rightfully, and then there are those who do not. And there are those who cling to the law and the testimony, that's verse 20. And then there are those who hire out for themselves occultists and necromancers. It's interesting that that's brought up there in that text. There are those who trust in the word of the Lord, and then there are those who trust in themselves. So that is the antithesis, and verse 22 gives us an indication to where it is that they're looking. Verse 22, then they will look to the earth, and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be banished into thick darkness. Those who live in rebellion against Yahweh, they only look to the earth for deliverance. That's where they're looking. 
They trust in chariots and horses. They trust in military and politicians. Uh, Isaiah points out the fact that sinful men will trust in anything but God. Sinful men will trust in anything, anything but God. We were talking about that a little bit earlier when we were getting set up, that um, we, will just, we will cry out to anyone and anything right now but God. CDC, save us. You know, who, save us. We're crying out to anybody and everybody but God. And here, their judgment is individual and purposeful and personal, I should say. The Hebrew verbs are actually all singular. But ignoring God, they look to the earth for salvation. And this leaves them without hope or a future. But keep reading. Verse 1 of chapter 9. But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea and the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall make great their gladness. They shall be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now, Matthew and Luke, fast forward to the New Testament, Matthew and Luke both tell us here that the light that's here is Jesus. So they, they walked in darkness and they've seen a great light and they, they say, well, actually, that's, that's Jesus. He, he's come and he's, this, he's the great light. So the objectivity, and by the way, the people who are walking in, in darkness, that's unbelieving Israel and the Gentiles as well. And they're the ones who've seen a great light unsuspecting people who they've seen this great light. But the objectivity lies in the divine action. It's God who brings the dawn. God is the one who brings the dawn. Only then is their subjective seeing part of the equation. They're not, oh, we're wonderful. This is great. We figured it out. Now we can see. No, the objectivity is God reveals it first. He's the one who brings the dawn. So God brings the dawn. They see it. And what do they see? Well, that's propositional, by the way, propositional revelation is the only thing that God gives men the ability to see. When God speaks, when God awakens our heart by the Holy Spirit, that's when we can truly see. And it says there is no more gloom for those who were in anguish because both light and comfort will come. So the New Testament sees Isaiah's prophecy as fulfilled in Christ. He is the great light for those who live in the shadow of death. The light, Isaiah says, will shine on them. The light will multiply the nation. It will give gladness to all, and it will shake everyone to the core. And take note of this theme of darkness and light. We're going to come back to it. Now flip in your New Testament to the book of Matthew. And we're going to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, 12 through 17. And I'm not going to read it. I just want you to kind of look as I, as I explain this. Matthew chapter 4, 12 through 17. In this section, we find that the verses from Isaiah 9 are now invoked. So Matthew, who lives 700 years later, 800 years later, he sees this text in Isaiah 9 and he says, Haha, this is what this is all about. This is after the Christmas story, mind you. Matthew chapter 4 is Jesus is already an adult at this point. He's already began his public ministry. He's been baptized and so on. But Matthew says that when Jesus went to Galilee, that's where his ministry was, leaving Nazareth, his hometown, he lived in Capernaum by the sea and this region of Zebulun and Naphtali 
is the one spoken of in Isaiah. So Jesus leaves Nazareth and goes to the place Isaiah prophesies about. And this, by the way, this is the region of Israel that fell first when the Assyrians had come. So it's no accident that Jesus goes there to begin his public ministry. He, he goes right to where Isaiah says it all began. Now Matthew sees the prophecy as an important connecting point. The people in darkness have seen a great light. And interestingly enough, look at verse 14, excuse me, verse 17, Matthew 4:17, we see this. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Mark tells us that already in the first chapter of Mark. Mark doesn't give us a birth story. Mark just starts. Isaiah prophesied, here's Jesus, and the very first words come out of his mouth, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. But I believe that Matthew is actually making a very um, important point here. The light of the world has come, and his preaching... And his preaching is, in fact, the rays that emanate from the sun of all suns. Here's the light, and the preaching of the kingdom are the rays that emanate from the light. I think that's what we're supposed to, to see here. Now, flip to Luke, Luke chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Luke 1 is long. It's 80 verses, but Luke 1, 26. Now, in this passage, Luke tells us how everything began. Uh, I'm just going to summarize this for you. Gabriel was an angel sent from God to the small village of Nazareth. It's probable that we're talking about a village of 400 to 500 people. Um, some have guessed maybe 200, but it's probably in that range uh, you think of Jeffersonton or something. I don't even know what the population of Rixieville is, but it's probably even way less than that. Ten people, yeah. Now, Mary is a 14 or 15-year-old virgin of little to no significance. She is betrothed to Joseph. So she's essentially a handmaiden. And that's probably how she made some money or, or contributed to the community, uh, whatever the arrangement is. She, she probably helped with you know, washing clothes and you know, those types of things. Um, she was of lowly estate, we know. She's certainly not among the cultural elites. God didn't pick you know, the great queen of England to, to have uh, the baby Jesus. Um, we're talking about a, a woman of really no significance at all in a very small town of no significance. Upon arrival, Gabriel, Gabriel communicates the message that would change the world. Mary is favored, and the Lord is with her. Mary, as it turns out, was perplexed, pondering what in the world this could mean, what Gabriel is telling her. And Gabriel told her not to be afraid, which is what you tell people who are afraid, by the way. And, and, and the, uh, he said not to be afraid, for God has found favor with her. That's the same language we have about Noah. God found favor with Noah. In other words, grace was upon her. God's grace was upon her. Gabriel cuts to the chase and tells her what's about to transpire. She will conceive in her womb, apart from any man's assistance, mind you. She will, this is Isaiah 7, right? The, the virgin will conceive. Um, 
a total miracle of the Holy Spirit. She will conceive in her womb, apart from any man's assistance, and bear a son whose name will be Jesus. Now, note that here Luke picks up on the rest of Isaiah 9, and that's the part about a child being born, a son given. Look at verses 32 and 33 of Luke 1. Speaking of Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end of his kingdom. I think Luke understood the significance of Isaiah 9. He, he understood that text. He understood the significance of Isaiah 9. A child would be born, a son would be given. His, he is both born and given, meaning that he is both from heaven and he's a gift. The government will rest on his shoulders, and that is, by the way, when, when, whenever we talk about the government, we mean, you know, the swamp creatures in D.C. That's generally what we mean, but don't read into the text here. The government will be on his shoulders means that is the burden of carrying forth the kingdom of God in space and time would be placed on his shoulders which is to say it would be his responsibility. The kingdom of God is placed on the baby's shoulders. So he is wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. He is eternal or everlasting father. By the way, that's not a problem with the Trinity. We're not talking about the Trinity. Everlasting father is just a way of speaking of his rulership being fatherly like. His governorship is like a king governing wisely. He will also be prince of peace. And what Luke sees is how Gabriel, Gabriel emphasizes Isaiah 9, 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Gabriel sees the connection, delivers the connection to Mary. Luke, he, he, he sees the same connection. Now I want to recap this. Isaiah's, in Isaiah's day, Israel was in darkness. It was a dark time of apostasy, cultural apostasy, the worship of false gods, the establishment of high places. The high places in Scripture are, uh, it could be on mountains. There are altars that are put in place where false gods were worshipped. could be Baal, Baal, or it could be Ashtaroth. There could be uh, uh, dozens of other false gods. So Israel was in darkness. Isaiah is prophesying, look, <laughs> There is going to come a time. Isaiah um, anticipates a time when a great light would come to deliver God's people. There is coming a time when the light, the sun is coming. The, the sun will be given. Now Luke, who paid very close attention to the detail when he learned of this event, Luke probably talked to Mary to get this story. He, he would have no doubt known her and, and probably helped take care of her, along with John. But Luke emphasizes the fact that Jesus is David's son, he's David's Lord, Psalm 110.1, and this son will be given the throne of David. I mean, that's just what Gabriel says. This is David's kid, and he's going to have David's throne. That's, how the, that's why this is a momentous time in history. So as king, he would reign forever, and Luke is careful to essentially quote Isaiah, and he says here, there will be no end of his kingdom. I love this text so much because people miss it. I mean, right from the outset here, the birth of Christ, 
here is this son, he's been given, he's David's kid, he's going to rule forever. He's going to rule forever. Now Matthew acknowledges that Israel remains in darkness, so he sees the same problem. Matthew, the gospel writers know when Jesus came, Israel is in the same shambles that they were 700, 800 years before. However, the arrival of Jesus and his preaching of the kingdom is the dawn of this great light. So that's the thread that I'm weaving here tonight for you um, in, in the scriptures. So what do we do with this? Well, one thing we do, <laughs> one thing we do is acknowledge what the Bible actually says here. We recognize that the Bible is our authority from God, and its authority pertains to all life and all of doctrine. All of life and all of doctrine. God has revealed himself to us in a verbalized propositional form. And if that is the case, and it is, then this revelation is also authoritative on Christmas. Isaiah 8 explains what happens when we reject the teaching and the testimony. What happens to a nation that rejects the teaching and the testimony of Scripture? Well, we start looking to ourselves, don't we? We start looking to the earth for deliverance and salvation. We start crying out to Fauci, who is science incarnate. See, we don't, we don't look outside of ourselves, which is what Christmas says we should be doing. We look inward. We become rationalists, elevating the mind. We become dualists, rejecting physical matter. We become blinded, looking for light while rejecting the only source of light. In other words, we must resist the temptation to find answers apart from the Scriptures or at least find answers that are not based upon the authority of the Scriptures. As Van Til has said, the Scripture is authoritative on everything of which it speaks, and it speaks of everything. So the dynamic here is this. Christmas is about light entering the darkness. Christmas is about light entering the darkness. The de facto status of all men everywhere is one of sin and unrighteousness. That is the de facto status, okay? We are born, as human beings made in the image of God, we are born into transgression. The wages of sin is death. That is the bottom line. That's where everybody starts. We're dead in our sins. That's the, that's the starting point. So when Adam and Eve fell, we fell with them. We are covenantally tied to them. That was our sin too. No one should ever be so arrogant as to say, well, if I was there, I would not have done that. No, you were there, and you did it too. I was there, and I did it too. When they sinned, we sinned. It's part of what Paul emphasizes in the letter to the Romans. We are covenantally dead from the moment of conception. By default, all of mankind is birthed into a kingdom of darkness, a kingdom of sin. And when we come into the world, we are covenantally blind and we are covenantally dead. We need a resurrection to make us see. So don't never get to the, you know, you come into this world and, you know, you're three days old, I think in your hot stuff, because infants do that. You're not. <laughs> and this is actual darkness, by the way. The kingdom of darkness is actual darkness. It's not light to live in rebellion against God. It's not light to live in rebellion against God. Darkness is truly and objectively 
darkness. Sin is truly and objectively sin. And this presupposes a standard, no doubt, but we do no one a favor by refusing to call darkness for what it is. And Isaiah issues prophetic judgments elsewhere. He says in chapter 5, verse 20, Woe, to, you know this text, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. There's our theme again. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. One of the difficult things to do in our evangelism and our propagation of the gospel is convince the darkness that it is in fact darkness. How do you tell a blind man that he is blind when he insists that he can see? According to this verse in Isaiah, there is a unique feature to darkness in that it loves to pretend that it's not. Notice that those who are in the darkness prefer to call it light. Those who are evil like to pretend that what they are doing is good. Those who are bitter like masquerading themselves as sugar. The backward nature of darkness should not be all that shocking to us. When evil hearts are fixated on furthering their evil intentions, it should not be surprising that the evil always seeks to gain more and more ground. Through the idol of statism, child sacrifice, sexual misconduct, and in our present day, the medical freedom shenanigans, darkness is never satisfied until it has vanquished all traces of light. Darkness wants to be dark. And it's our job to shine the light. See, the great truth of Christmas is that the light, the good, and the sweet has come. Christ, the light of the world, has risen. Christ, the light of the world, has dawned on an unsuspecting world covered in disease and spiritual defection. Apart from the revelation of God in Christ, the world has a dust of death piled on top of it. The entrance of the light of the world into space and time through the Virgin Mary has disrupted these nefarious plans. Christ has come. That's our announcement. Christ has come. And when we all see the Christmas lights decorated on the trees downtown, it's very pretty. On the houses and neighborhoods we drive by, you see you know, the lights on the trees inside of our homes. When you see that, we are, wittingly or unwittingly, declaring that light is light and Christ is, in fact, that light. We are declaring to the world the default position of rebellion has now been disrupted. The bottom line, when people are born into the sin, born into the kingdom of darkness, Christmas says that is no longer the case. We are changing things now. The old ways of sin and death are abolished. Christmas is absolutely an insurrection. Why else would Herod be so paranoid? It's an insurrection against the powers and principalities that have led the way for far too long. Christmas is a declaration of war. And God himself is condescended to man. God became man. That's the message. And either we will have Christ the light as our deliverance, or we will do what Isaiah warns about. We will look to ourselves. We will look to the earth. We will cry out to the medical white coat overlords. We will cry out to our politicians. If we don't cry out to Christ, we'll cry out to them. But with the light here, guess what? Looking we must do. Everyone's looking for deliverance. Everyone. Being born into this world, we are always looking. We are always searching for something. And as Augustine famously said in his, his book in the Confessions, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. 
but they're always trying. But with this dynamic comes this level of accountability. There is nothing to find in the darkness. There is nothing to find in the darkness. There is only sin. There is only death. There is only the effacing of the image of God in man. We are not loving our neighbors when we let them live by lies. Christmas is about the incarnation of Jesus, fully God, fully man, born of the virgin, wise men and shepherds, mangers and paranoid political rulers, but it is connected to the larger story of what Christ has come to do. And notice back in Matthew, he pulls from the Christmas passage of Isaiah 9 and he applies it to Jesus' ministry while he was an adult. And then, as I said earlier, the light preaches light. Light preaches heat. Light preaches. And as Luke says, his kingdom is forever. So like a freight train, the light of the world barrels through the darkness in order to establish Christ's kingdom. But what did the religious leaders do to the light of the world? That's an interesting question. What is it that they attempted to do? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, that none of the religious leaders knew the wisdom of the cross, which was hidden beforehand during the Old Testament times and the Old Testament economy. None of the religious leaders knew that the cross was going to be wisdom because the cross was foolishness. It was shame. It was devastating. The most painful way to die What's the most painful way to die? Something that lasts a long time and it's painful at the same time. Slow and painful. That was the cross. And the religious leaders didn't recognize, Paul says. They didn't understand what it was God was doing in Christ. And had they understood, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.8, they would have not crucified. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The religious leaders thought that they were squashing the light, but what they didn't realize is that they were lighting the candle. That's why they wouldn't have done it. They wouldn't have done it had they known that. They believed that in putting Christ to death, that they were putting an end to a mere mortal man. One insurrectionist in a long line of other Jewish insurrectionists that they've seen before. And what they didn't realize was that they were undoing their own lives. They were putting an end to their own kingdoms. They were unraveling their own petty plans. They had no idea that putting Christ on the cross was going to undo everything they ever thought. The religious leaders wanted to snuff out the ineffable light of the world, but they did not know that they were lighting the match. And none of us can see without light, right? None of us can see without light. None of us can exist in God's world without the truth of God's propositional self-revelation, what we have in His Word. When we walk into a dark room, we are blind. We stub our big toe on the end table, we spill our coffee on the carpet, and we stammer around looking for the couch. Or worse, you step on a Lego. But that's life without light. And that's what darkness really is. It's groping around trying to find meaning and purpose. It's stumbling and stammering and spluttering. It's giving meaning to some false god in order to prop oneself up. That's why the religious leaders didn't get it. They were fools acting foolishly. They were acting consistent with their unregenerate nature. And yet, in God's wisdom, their folly led to the wisdom of God being put on the full display for the world to see. 
Their folly led to the wisdom of God being put on full display for the world to see. And the reason that the light of the gospel shines so brightly is because the darkness had done all that it could do. Darkness had expended itself, folded in on itself, extinguished itself. The cross was, for a moment, a victory for darkness. That's what it looked like. But three days later, it was toppled. Where is the grip of death in a world where resurrection isn't just possible but actual? Where is the grip and victory of death and darkness when light is reignited three days later? Christmas means that God delivers. God delivers. And he delivers us from seeking all the wrong stuff. He delivers us from stammering around trying to figure out ways to get rid of him. He delivers us from looking to the earth for deliverance. He delivers us from trusting in ourselves and our political concoctions. God delivers. Christ delivers. And the ultimate deliverance was our new creation transformation when he transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. And Christmas is always, always a reminder that God entered into his world and he stooped very low. He stooped very, very low. Especially in, in our nation, the most vulnerable place to ever be, the womb of a mom. He stooped very low. Why did Christ have to stoop so low? Why? Because that's where we are. None of us can truly see without the light, but with Christ we can finally see clearly. And oftentimes we are astonished by trivial things, but Christmas tells us that we ought to be astonished by the miraculous things. So may Christ, the light, restore that awe and wonder in all of us this season. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you've given to us here in this Christmas story. We thank you uh, that we could be here and gather like this to sing, to pray, to look to you. And I pray your blessing upon our time. Father, as we go and we take communion together, as we uh, sing the doxology, may you be glorified, may you be honored, and may we be strengthened as a result. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.